The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's very helpful to get that locked in. And under the assumption that Pence is is not going to perjure himself before a grand jury, whereas he might be a little bit more likely to say things in public that are a little imprecise, shall we say? I think without without knowing what evidence the special counsel has, or what charges, or what defendants he's he's intending to pursue, it's hard to know how much Pence's testimony advances the ball, but it was obviously a necessary box for him to, or any prosecutor, to check in the situation. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 5th, 2023. In April, former Vice President Mike Pence testified before a federal grand jury under subpoena as part of the special counsel's investigation into January 6th. The testimony came after the district court rejected Pence's challenge to the validity of the subpoena under the speech or debate clause of the Constitution. And now, months later, Chief Judge James Boesberg has unsealed his ruling on the matter, along with other documents related to Pence's challenge. When news of the subpoena first broke, Molly Reynolds and I sat down with Mike Stern and Eric Columbus on the Lawfare podcast to talk through the issues raised. Now that we have more details about just what took place, Molly and I invited Mike and Eric back to discuss what they made of Pence's argument and the court's decision, and what this episode adds to our understanding of the January 6th investigation. It's the Lawfare podcast, July 5th. The legal arguments behind Mike Pence's January 6th grand jury testimony. Eric, for listeners who are just catching up, can you remind us of the backstory here? What's the story with the subpoena and how is it that the vice president, who is not a senator or representative, can invoke uh, the speech or debate clause? So uh, the subpoena was issued by a grand jury uh, that has been convened by special counsel Jack Smith to investigate events uh, related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And Vice President Pence, as everyone knows, presided over the joint session of Congress that day and was uh, lobbied rather hard by then-President Trump to do something illegal, which was to uh, overturn the election results himself or somehow send the uh, electoral certificates back to the states so the states could re-examine the question of whether there was uh, a fraud, which 
no one uh, has found in any quantity that would have affected the election results. So Jack Smith is interested in learning what Mike Pence knows about efforts by others to encourage him to engage in this illegal activity. It's probably it's probably looking at uh, possibly indicting uh, Trump and possibly others uh, in, in Trump's circle. So that is the subpoena. And then we come to the speech or debate clause, which uh, for those who have not committed it to memory is a phrase in the, in the Constitution that says uh, senators representatives force any speech or debate in either house shall not be questioned in any other place. Uh, now that's that's somewhat odd wording that is a little bit uh, inconsistent with how it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court, which has basically said that it, it forbids inquiries into uh, what the Supreme Court has called uh, legislative acts. And there are a, a, a few uh, parts of, of that protection. It means basically that you cannot be indicted uh, for a legislative act or sued civilly for a legislative act. Legislative act evidence cannot be used against a member of Congress. And as relevant here, you can't be made to answer any questions about your legislative acts. You can't be called and testify about, you know, why you voted a, in a certain way on a certain bill. Now, obviously, the speech or debate clause, as I've read it, does not refer to the vice president. It refers only to senators and representatives. But the vice president is, in the Constitution, the president of the Senate. And when he casts, or, or, or she, obviously, now, casts a tie-breaking vote when the Senate is, is 50-50, uh, she is very much acting as a senator does. And on January 6th, it was somewhat in between in that the Vice President Pence did not have a voting role, but he was presiding uh, over the event. So it's not unusual for a, a court to read constitutional language in a way that is that is uh, not literal, but is necessary in order to achieve its purposes. And the most basic example that I can think of is the First Amendment, which the first word of the First Amendment is Congress. Uh, and it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or bridging the freedom of speech, etc., etc. It does not refer to the executive branch, and yet it has been consistently uh, applied to it's been consistently held to apply to the executive branch as well. So we learned in March that Chief Judge James Boesberg of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia had, um, in fact, ordered Pence to testify in at least some of the issues on which the special counsel wanted to question him. Uh, but the underlying court documents were secret due to rules around grand jury secrecy. Uh, now those documents have been unsealed, though. Uh, they are heavily redacted. Um, Mike, can you summarize for us what Judge Bosberg said um, in his ruling? Uh, sure. So basically, he said that the 
only thing that would be protected by speech or debate. Well, first of all, he said that the vice president was covered by speech or debate. He rejected the argument that uh, the vice president was you know, not, not a legislative branch official and that, or that he was, because he's not named in the speech or debate clause, that he is completely outside the scope of speech or debate. So he rejected those arguments and he said that basically the vice president would be treated for these purposes as if he were a senator, uh, but applying the speech or debate clause to the specific communications at issue, he said that what would be covered would be the internal communications that Pence had with his uh, staff, with Senate officials related to January 6th, but what would not be covered would be any discussions with President Trump or John Eastman. And the reason he said those would not be covered is because that they were involved requests for him to do or Pence to do things that were illegal. Specifically, what he said was the clause does not protect conversations whose principal function is to exhort an, a legislator to act unlawfully or ultra virus, meaning beyond the bounds of the legislator's lawful of authority. And because he concluded that all of the things that Trump and Eastman were asking Pence to do would fall within that exception, he concluded they were not protected by speech or debate. So I'm curious what you both made of Bosberg's ruling. It seemed pretty much in line with the conversation that we had back in in February. Um, so do you think that he got it right? Mike, let's start with you. And then, Eric, I'd like to hear your thoughts as well. So well, I, I went back over what I had said. Uh, and I think I, I hedged myself so well that I can claim that whatever happens is in line with what I said. But I think in terms of the result was pretty consistent with what I thought it would be, which is that uh, at least the conversations with Trump and Eastman probably be held to be unprotected. But the reasoning for it was slightly different than what I anticipated. So I did not think that the fact that they were asking him to do something illegal was going to be dispositive. And at least as Judge Boesberg put it in his opinion, that, it, that is the distinction that he, de he decided to draw. Now, I think maybe that isn't quite the right distinction, even that he meant to draw, uh, because, for example, if someone is having a discussion that is part of the legislative, that is part of within the legislative sphere, and that relates to uh, a potential vote, say, on a, on a bill, it seems to me very unlikely that, that, that the question of whether or not that communication is protected would turn on whether, say, the bill was unconstitutional. Uh, I just don't think that's quite the right distinction to draw. I think, though, what Judge Boesberg may have meant in this case is a little more than that when he says illegal he really means that what Pence was being asked to do was so far outside the scope of his 
duties on his legislative uh, responsibilities on January 6th, that it, that those actions, had he taken them, would not have been protected by speech or debate. So to take, I mean, I mean if, for example, if Trump and uh, Eastman had asked Pence to go in to the electoral count proceeding and uh, shoot the tellers, I think everyone would agree that that was outside the scope of his legislative authority and uh, and therefore would not be protected. Here, the, it's a closer question, but the, but the argument I think that Bosberg ultimately ad- agreed with is that Pence really had no authority whatsoever to make the kinds of rulings that they were asking him to make. And he was basically having to step outside the scope of presiding over the proceeding and do something entirely uh, without any, any legal foundation, as opposed to if they had simply asked him to rule in a particular way on an objection, it might be an improper ruling, it might be a ruling that he didn't have the legal authority to make, but it was agreed that he does have the, the job of ruling on objections that are made by members of Congress. So I think if it had been parsed a little more closely, that that might have been where he, he came out. And, and, if, and if I'm right in where he, in, in interpreting what he ultimately found, I think that's a pretty reasonable way of, of splitting the baby. And Eric, I'm curious for your thoughts. Uh, I, I think that's basically right. I, I think Judge Boesberg uh, got it right in terms of the outcome and, and Mike makes some interesting points about illegal. Um, and I guess it kind of depends on what, what the word illegal means. Like if, if, if you're asking someone to vote on a bill that is unconstitutional, is that an illegal act? Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure. It's, it's I think it's not because it's the it's the bill itself that is illegal, or, or rather, it is the application. To be to be more precise, it is the the application of the bill, if passed into law, that would be illegal because it would contravene the law as set forth in the Constitution. But it would not be illegal, I don't think, for a senator to vote for such a bill. But it's interesting, like they are, they are asking if they instructed Pence to, or, or beseech Pence to shoot the tellers in Mike's example, that is, is both illegal and not within his lawful authority uh, to do. Um, let's, let's pick a different example, though. What if they instructed or asked Pence to not to shoot the tellers, but to tickle the tellers until they giggled uncontrollably? <laughs> Uh, that would... I have to ask, did you just come up with that on the spot? <laughs> yes, I, I did. I, I think that's probably better than I did rather than I had... <laughs> um, and uh, that would be perfectly legal as far as I know, uh, but it would not be something that is within Pence's authority within his role as, as the presiding officer at the joint session. It would be perfectly legal for him to do, but we would be on his authority. It would have zero relation to a legislative act and therefore I think would not be protected by the, the speech or debate clause in the 
<laughs> I think, extremely unlikely event that it would somehow become a, a feature of litigation. Right. I mean, so on this question, I'm looking at the um, at Buzzberg's opinion and the two cases that he points to, uh, Brewster and Helstosky, that speak to this question of whether an act that's illegal or ultra-virus can be covered by speech or debate. They both involve criminal prosecutions of members of Congress. So one involves a, a, a senator who was prosecuted for taking a bribe prior to voting for a bill. And, and I understand that Helstosky, the other case, involves a political corruption case. So those two seem to be more tied to the sort of the realm of criminal law rather than, you know, sort of broader questions about unconstitutionality to your point, Mike. I mean, I, I wonder whether we might be able to tie that to the fact that, you know, this is a criminal investigation. Um, it's an investigation into potential criminality. You could make an argument about, you know, if they're looking into, say, some kind of conspiracy charge to defraud the United States or, you know, that that in some way touches on this effort to pressure Pence that that's tied to a potential criminal charge, not against Pence, but against perhaps Trump or others around him, um, that you can sort of make that connection there rather than the sort of the question of unconstitutionality. Um, I'm spitballing a little bit here, but Mike, is that kind of what you're getting to when you say that um, Boesberg could have constrained the argument a little more? Not exactly. So I think what he tried to do was he tried to use Helstosky and Brewster to support his position. And he picked up on the illegality language in those cases. But those are cases really about illegal means. And so the point as I read the, them, is that the, the bribery itself is not, cannot be part of, a, of the, uh, cannot be a legislative act or part of the legislative process. The problem here is that he's not really talking about illegal means. There's nothing particularly illegal about what, uh, about having a conversation with the vice president if they, if it had been alleged that they were trying to, you know, extort him or blackmail him or whatever, which could have been potentially involved, but was not part of the argument, uh, then there would be an analogy there. But instead, he was talking about the illegality of what they wanted Pence to do. And I think that's a different issue. And I think it's it's a valid argument, but I don't think it's really supported particularly by Brewster and Helstosky. And the fact that they all involve criminal charges uh, or criminal investigations or trials is not something that Bozberg relied on. He, that was something the government argued before him as, as a factor, that the fact that it was a criminal proceeding uh, suggested that the speech or debate clause should be construed more narrowly, but he didn't bite on that argument. I don't really think that's correct. Yeah, so um, sort of as you were alluding to, Mike, so one of the documents that we have that was unsealed is the hearing transcript. Um, and in the hearing transcript, um, Judge Pillsberg kind of says again and again that he finds the issue really interesting. Um, and he thanks the parties for doing such a good job with the briefing. I'm curious, uh, maybe to start with you, Eric, 
you know, in general, what did you think of the arguments made by both Pence's lawyers and then also the special counsel's office um, in that hearing? What struck me the the most was that DOJ, uh, as I think Judge Boasberg put it in his opinion, uh, I think he said that they swung big at the beginning by arguing that the vice president is not covered at all by the speech or debate clause. And that is is contradicted by previous DOJ uh, positions. There was a recent piece that in, in uh, Just Security, written by Andy Wright and Ryan Goodman, it was written actually in February, that talks about a, a few cases in which DOJ has taken the position in litigation that the vice president is covered by the speech or debate clause. There is a, a civil suit a couple of years ago uh, against Pence and other mem- members of Congress as a defendants, uh, a suit regarding January 6th, actually. And the, the DOJ said you, you can't sue them because they have absolute legislative immunity under the speech or debate clause. There were uh, a couple of other suits in 2019, 2020, that in which DOJ took the same position. So this gets to, I think, one of the interesting features of the special counsel's office, which is that they, they tend not to be supervised by other litigation offices within the Department of Justice. So they may feel they have more leeway to make an argument that is inconsistent with the rest of what DOJ has said in other contexts. Uh, and it may point to just how maybe they really, really wanted to get uh, Pence's uh, opinion. So they're willing to say things that uh, were, were inconsistent and to say things that may have made their other positions seem more moderate, more reasonable by comparison. Otherwise, I think the briefing was pretty much what, what I would have expected by, by, by both sides. Mike, any thoughts? I, I thought that the, um, I, th- I thought the briefing was pretty good. I did notice that um, Pence's motion starts out with saying that he, he believes the constitution requires him not to, testify unless ordered by a court of final appeal, which uh, was a position that the government spent some time refuting, which in, in, in some sense, it's sort of irrelevant to the case before the, before the judge. But it's interesting that Pence then did not, in fact, appeal Boesberg's uh, decision. So apparently he changed his mind on, on that issue. Uh, but, but otherwise, I thought that the uh, parties did a pretty good job of, of briefing the the issues. And, and I thought Judge Boesberg was very thoughtful in how he uh, approached the questions. And, and he, I think, made a, 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 an effort to formulate his opinion in the narrowest possible way to avoid doing things that will affect a lot of other cases involving uh, members of Congress that do not involve these kind of very unique circumstances before him. So I, I thought that was good. If I could add one more thing, actually, the, the, uh, when this was being teed up, there were people on some people on Twitter, I think, including former judge Michael Ludig, who suggested that the, speech or debate clause to the extent it applies here should yield to the government's demonstration of need uh, in terms of getting materials before the grand jury. 
that, as I said at the time, that is not consistent with how the courts have interpreted the speech or debate clause. Uh, it's a, it is how executive privilege works, but the speech or debate clause is, is a, some of a less qualified privilege and it, it, it does not yield to a showing of need. Uh, and notably, DOJ did not even try to argue that because they've read their case law. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good callback. Thank you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, 
doxing and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So to the point, uh, Mike, that you made about Pence's uh, failure to appeal, I wanted to touch on how we understand his strategy here. So I was struck in the the brief from the special counsel's office that they seem a bit annoyed at points um, in their motion in opposition about the fact that Pence wrote a whole book about a lot of the things that he now says he can't testify about. And they quote extensively from the book in this motion. There's a footnote at one point that says, I think somewhat snarkily, uh, quote, Pence certainly understands that he is free to choose to talk about these topics as he did extensively in his book. And so when we'd last spoken, I think you both had suggested that you sort of understood Pence's effort to fight the subpoena as an essentially political calculation rather than deriving from, you know, some really deeply held constitutional position on the nature of the speech or debate clause and the vice presidency. Do these documents change your view at all? Eric, let's start with you. Uh, not really. I mean, I, I think they, I mean, the, the, the briefing was, was solid. He wasn't just kind of, those lawyers weren't just kind of like, uh, going through the, the motions, no, no pun intended. But I mean, I, I do think that Pence was just trying to be seen as having, uh, fought the subpoena and certainly he didn't have any great desire to testify, but, I don't think that it came from, from, as you say, any, any, uh, deeply held views about the uh, speech or debate clause. I mean, obviously Pence wants to become president. He, I don't know whether he has any thoughts on the virtue of prosecuting Donald Trump. I think he would be happy if, if Trump kind of fell into a deep, restful, peaceful, uh, sleep for the remainder of his life. But, uh, Pence's goal is just, I think, to kind of wave the the flag of of resistance to the subpoena and and leave it at that. Meg, does that sound right to you? Well, I think that does seem right based on the fact that he didn't appeal. I mean, he he claims in his motion that he's doing it to protect the institution of the vice presidency, and he feels that he's constitutionally obligated not to comply with the subpoena absent a ruling from the a court of final appeal, but then he didn't appeal. 
So I have to uh, conclude from that that he was, in fact, going through the motions and that he was just as happy to testify. I mean, I, this, perhaps he didn't care one way or the other, but having uh, run it up the flagpole and lost, he was happy to, to testify. So. So going back um, for a moment to the hearing, so there's some discussion in the hearing about whether fact-finding by a member of the legislative branch um, is protected under the speech or debate clause only if it is authorized by a committee or subcommittee. Um, Mike, you've written about this issue in other contexts. Can you sort of walk us through what's going on here and how it does or does not uh, fit in with some other cases that are currently pending? Sure. So... What what Pence's counsel tried to uh, the way Pence's counsel tried to frame this issue was that Pence was basically collecting information related to his uh, his duties on January sixth, and the president President Trump had a view, and Pence was there to listen to the view that Trump was expressing, and then he would take that into account. And so it is essentially, again, as the council framed it, a form of, of informal fact-fighting, which has been a, a contested uh, area of speech or debate. So this has come up, this is currently actually an issue that's pending before the D.C. Circuit because of the case involving, also involving the special counsel and a subpoena to uh, Congressman Scott Perry, who actually a it's actually a, they, they seized his cell phone and they want to look at uh, a whole bunch of text messages on Congressman Perry's cell phone relating to January 6th. Congressman Perry has argued that, he, that those are all protected by speech or debate. And one of the big arguments is whether his informal gathering of information related to the proceedings on January 6th is protected by speech or debate. The district court in that case, Judge Howell, said no. She did not believe that uh, his, what she described as, as his random musings with people outside of the legislative branch would be protected under speech or debate. And she said that it would only, it could only be protected if there was some sort of formal authorization through a committee or a, a subcommittee for his fact-finding. That is based on an interpretation of some earlier D.C. Circuit precedent, which is contestable, but that is the position that, that Judge Howell took in that case, and that was argued before the D.C. Circuit, which is yet to rule on the issue. So I'm curious... What you both think about whether there's anything that we can learn about the broader January 6th investigation from these documents, as you say, Mike, it touches briefly on the the Perry case. There's a lot of tantalizing redactions about what the special counsel's office wants to discuss with Pence and what they can discuss with Pence. Is there anything either, you know, that we can guess about what's under those redaction bars or material that is not redacted that's set out, anything that we can learn about the direction of the investigation? Eric, let me start with you. I, I don't know. I There was nothing that, I mean, there's clearly, 
what's under the bar is it provides more information about uh, what they were, what the investigation is about, and the specifics. I, I, I somehow doubt it would be shocking to to any of us if we if we saw what was under there, because we know that it it all relates to uh, Mike Pence's role, and uh, I, I think there we can probably guess given how much reporting we've seen. And given the January 6th commission's work uh, of the various actors who were in communication with him or trying to be in communication with him. Uh, so I don't think it shields much, much light. There was a somewhat odd uh, 25, I think 25 page long redaction at the beginning of the uh, hearing transcript. I, I really have no idea what, what that's about. And it ends with a reference to the courtroom deputy and a bag. But who knows? It's somewhat ominous, I thought. <laughs> yes. Well, Eric also had a good catch uh, in the hearing redaction. There, there apparently was a third party involved that was not uh, that, that they redacted the name of the third party. Yeah, we were trying to figure out who that might be, but we don't really know. But uh, that that that's probably the most interesting uh, factual observation that. Uh, that I, that I noticed. I mean, there is also a li- some references in Pence's brief to the position he took with the January 6th committee, uh, in which he, he sort of suggested that the, that the special counsel doesn't actually know the, the details of that, uh, of his discussions with the January 6th committee, uh, which I thought was somewhat interesting, but since I don't know the details either, I can't really say more. Yeah, that's that's interesting about the third party. I hadn't caught that, but you're you're totally right. I mean, do you have any guesses about who it it might be? It's it's perplexing. I mean, it, it could be. I mean, it could be. It's it's both a third party who has some sort of interest and needs to be redacted. So it's hard to know who would fit both those categories. I mean, we know that Trump has been involved in this uh, litigation in challenging Pence, Pence's testimony on executive privilege grounds, and, and Trump lost that. I don't know why that would give him a seat at the table uh, at this hearing, although obviously it would explain why he was redacted. I mean, another possibility that Mike suggested when we were chatting was the Senate Legal Counsel, but I don't know why they would be redacted if they were showing up. It's obviously no secret that the vice president, uh, vice president's role is, is connected to uh, the Senate. Right. That's really interesting. I mean, I will say I don't know how much to read into this. And just looking at the at the lawyers on the on the briefing and uh, who are listed in the transcript, so. This is just a kind of a fun callback for people who follow the Miller investigation closely. I did note that uh, arguing for Trump is uh, Emmett Flood, or excuse me, arguing for Pence is Emmett Flood, who I just slipped up because he did represent Trump during the Mueller investigation. So he's a an old hand here when it comes to investigations of or around the president. And for the special counsel's office, Thomas Wyndham does not uh, speak during the transcript, I don't think, or perhaps he does under those redaction bars. Um, but he is listed as there for the special counsel's office. And we know from press reporting that he was taking or he has been taking a leading role in the January 6th investigation. 
I don't know how much to read into that. For all I know, he's sitting in on all of these uh, uh, hearings before uh, the chief judge. But I did see that and kind of wonder if that indicated perhaps that, you know, this is a a matter that the special counsel's office is taking really seriously if the guy who's sort of leading this prong of the investigation is uh, sitting in there and uh, watching closely what what happens. So uh, to sort of uh, like invert the last question a little bit, how significant is it that the special counsel was able to get this testimony from Pence? Um, It seems like it could have potentially been a problem for the investigation if they couldn't get Pence to talk. How significant should we um, interpret it that they were able to get him to testify? Certainly helpful to have him, his Pence's testimony nailed down. To the extent that there is some concern that Pence is going to, for political reasons, try to shade things in Trump's favor, it's very helpful to get that locked in and under the assumption that Pence is is not going to perjure himself before a grand jury, and whereas he might be a little bit more likely to say things in public that are a little imprecise, shall we say, I think without without knowing what evidence the special counsel has or what charges or what defendants he's he's intending to pursue, it's hard to know how much Pence's testimony advances the ball, but it was obviously a necessary box for him to, or any prosecutor to check in the situation. And Mike, do you have a sense of that one way or another? Not really. I I mean, I think, I assume like Eric, that the substance of what Pence was asked and what he testified to is pretty close to what was laid out in rather great detail in the government's brief and which came directly from his book that he's already written on the subject. So I suppose if they were unable to have him actually testify that could have been a problem for their investigation if there's something about his testimony that is really a key piece of evidence that they want to be able to present as part of an indictment. I'm not honestly have no idea as to what exactly that would be. Uh, they, are, they, they know in terms of what he, what he has to say from his book. And so to the extent they needed any leads, they really already had that. Uh, so I, I obviously they chose to subpoena him. So I think there's some reason that they thought it was important, but it doesn't really seem to me, based on fairly little knowledge, but that it, that it's really a key inflection point of the investigation. Yeah, I was wondering about that as well. I mean, it I, I, it's it's good to have him under oath on these things, but right, they clearly uh, as as the special counsel's office itself notes, you know. They know a lot of what he's he would probably tell them because he already wrote it down. So I wanted to close by asking you both, you know, what bigger takeaways we might have from this case. Mike, when we were talking about this podcast, you'd suggested that there might be some something interesting here uh, to discuss in terms of proposals that have been put on the table for an office of congressional counsel um, and how that might interact with this litigation. Can you talk about that a bit? Yes. So uh, one of the interesting things about this in a lot of speech or debate cases is that 
the ruling here is could potentially have a lot of uh, very significant impact on Congress as a whole. Currently, there's not a mechanism for Congress as an institution to express a unified legal position. And even the House and, and Senate legal councils are often uh, constrained in their ability to appear in cases like this, since there's they are not directly representing any party. In addition, as Eric alluded to earlier, the views of the executive branch tend to be much more unified, often expressed through Office of Legal Counsel opinions. And there was an Office of Legal Counsel opinion that the judge, Judge Boasberg, cited in this case involving the nature of the vice presidency. The Congress doesn't have a, a corresponding way of issuing legal opinions that have that kind of weight and uh, authority with the courts. And so one of the ways that that has been, uh, that it's been suggested that that could be rectified is by creating an office of, of congressional counsel. And there, uh, the select, the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Uh, proposed that that issue be studied by GAO, which is currently conducting a series of discussions and, and, and inquiries about that issue, which will presumably result in recommendations or reports at some point. Uh, but it is, I think, interesting to note that uh, these cases go on and Congress is is to some degree hampered in its ability to formulate an institutional position by the limitations of the current council's office. Uh, so whether that is, is addressed by creating a new office of congressional council or perhaps just enhancing the authorities of the current House and Senate legal councils, uh, I think it is an important issue to, to look at. And just to, to put a finer point on that, I mean, how might that have changed the arguments presented in this case, do you think? Are there certain points, you know, if you look at the transcript, if you look at the the briefing and uh, Bosberg's ruling where you say it would have been really useful to have a kind of institutional congressional voice here? So I think that, that, that in this particular case, Congress actually came out pretty well because actually Bosberg's opinion, even though the bottom line is, uh, is mostly against speech or debate privilege for Pence, his reasoning is actually pretty pro Congress. But in some sense, he reached that not so much through the help of the parties, but through his own thoughtful <laughs> parsing of the uh, issues. Uh, because really none of neither of the councils actually proposed this solution that he he came up with. Um, the government would have had a much much more um, limited scope of speech or debate. Part of their proposal or part of their argument was that because this uh, related to future legislative acts, that they were completely excluded from the protection of speech or debate. So if he had bought that broad argument, that it could have had a very deleterious effect on 
Congress. And in fact, during the argument, one of the hypotheticals he asked the government's counsel was, supposing a senator wants to know how to vote on a bill and he calls up the secretary of agriculture, I think was the example, but but some cabinet secretary and says, I want your best advice on what this bill would do or which way I should vote, or I want some information related to, to my vote. Uh, and the and judge wanted to know whether that would be protected and, and the government counsel said no. Uh, we in, in our view, that would not be protected. And there was no one, of course, Pence's counsel took would have said it was protected, but for reasons that were somewhat different than what a congressional counsel would have argued. And fortunately, the judge was just not persuaded by that. He was not willing to take that broad of a view. And he and he was very careful to cabin his opinion in a way that it has, a, I think, a minimum adverse effect on Congress. Although, as I, for the reasons I suggested, he might have done it even a little better than he did. But there wasn't a representation really of Congress's interest that Pence, Pence's counsel was advocating for Pence's interest, which to some extent was, was consistent, but not but was not really uh, focused on the broader institutional interests. And obviously the government was not interested at all in protecting Congress's interests. Yeah. Eric, I'm curious if you have any, any thoughts on that or any other bigger takeaways from this litigation? It is, as I mentioned in our in our last podcast, it is uh, a case that I, I think we should all very much hope uh, will be a one-off. One, one certainly hopes that there won't be a repeat of a situation where uh, there's an investigation, criminal investigation into folks, uh, including the president, trying to persuade the vice president to exercise non-existent powers to overturn the election. So I, I think it was one where Judge Boesberg had some running room to kind of split the baby in a way that led to the uh, most just result, which I think points out some of the weaknesses of the baby splitting metaphor. <laughs> and probably does not have great impact one way or another going forward. Well, we, we've gone from tickling uh, Senate staff <laughs> to shooting Senate staff to splitting babies. So I think that's a, a good place to end it. Babies are the ones who I suppose should be tickled. So maybe we can find <laughs> a way to Exactly. Exactly. It. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.